This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome to Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation, a new show where we explore the intersection of technology, business, and national security with the Defense Innovation Unit, part of the U.S. Department of Defense, and key partners in this effort to grow the nation's innovation base. I'm your host, Dan Dillard. Today, on our first episode, we're joined as always by my co-host, Zach Walker, the DIU Texas lead, and national security expert, August Cole. August started his career as a journalist writing about the economy and defense industries for publications like MarketWatch.com and The Wall Street Journal. Now, he's retired from journalism and spends his time exploring futuristic warfare through storytelling. He is co-author of bestseller Ghost Fleet, a novel of next world war, and most recently, Burn In, a novel of real robotic revolution. He's here to help us understand how the Department of Defense is preparing for the future and why what it decides not to do is just as important as what they do. Here are Zach and August to tell us more. Zach, it's great to see you again. And August, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. August, I'm really excited to be introduced to your work. I am a geek when it comes to future type novels, so I've been looking forward to this chat. Could you share with us how you got started down this path as an author where you focused on future warfare through storytelling? One of the, the things that I've you know, come to appreciate, I think, in the past decade is what you don't do is as important as what you do do. And I uh, left the Wall Street Journal literally 10 years ago this spring to try to figure out how to not write about what had just happened, but what was going to be happening. My initial career in journalism was at marketwatch.com and the dot-com boom and throughout the crash and after really covering the economy, you know, covering a little bit of the defense and aerospace industries, but also seeing up close what it's like to be part of a disruptive company that's try trying to take a very institutionalized sector like the news business and upend it, but also seeing the the failures, uh, you know, the aspirations, a lot of the, uh, the, the ways that people thought the future was going to pan out and were investing accordingly it had nothing to do with the reality of actual uh, technological implementation in the real world. So I ended up um, working at the Wall Street Journal uh, at the uh, in kind of the 2007 uh, timeframe, and I covered the defense industry, which was a great perch to start to get my teeth into context of, uh, say, cybersecurity as we understood it then. Looking at a lot of the the bigger weapons programs from a from an affordability perspective, and just doing the the beat work of a reporter, and it's really interesting because the role that fiction played in that phase of my writing career was fairly minimal. I read for fun occasionally, but I think I had, like a lot of people in the national security community, a sense that something like fiction wasn't going to help me do my job better. And when I when I left that to actually write a, a, a fictional story about private military contractors, uh, which is a, is a part of the defense sector that like the stuff you hear about, you just can't make up. And I thought, well, that would actually be a really interesting, uh, you know, uh, kind of fodder for, for, a, for a narrative, for a novel. And and I started to give myself more permission after I quit to read fiction and to kind of rediscover science fiction particularly. And and as I did so and started to see, you know, some of the further developments in, uh, you know, offensive cyber and the effects it was having, starting to see some of the ways that warfare itself was changing and and allowing me to try to start to look ahead to what would be happening next. That That really, I think, culminated in Ghost Fleet in 2015, which was a story of how the U.S. Uh, ends up in a global war with with uh, China and Russia, 
And, and the thing about, about that is that, that was a book I, I wrote with my burning co-writer, Peter Singer, who's a great collaborator, far smarter than me, and just the kind of person you want to team up with and, and has a, a real nose for a story. And what we both believed was just in the same way Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising in 86, I think really shaped the perceptions of what technology could do and, and not do in the uh, context of a third world war. You know, Clancy really thought the unthinkable and imagined this, this global conflict. We wanted to do that with Ghost Fleet, but spin it forward and start to take a lot of the baseline assumptions about technology today and apply them in a future context where we felt there was not enough attention being paid to really core assumptions like, will the Chinese military be technologically advanced in the late 2020s? Are we too reliant on very expensive platforms and not focusing enough on software or similar capability? You know, where are our blind spots? That same ethos is behind our latest book, Burn In, which is domestic story. Uh, it's an FBI agent who's hunting uh, for a terrorist who's trying to use technology essentially to turn the country against itself. But the twist is this 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 agent is teamed with a robot, and her background as a Marine, as a robot wrangler in the future world that we've built, gives her a very utilitarian look at technology. And so it's a great window with, with which to look at how AI and robotics are going to start transforming not just uh, these questions of national security, but all the facets of society that we often overlook, but really do need to understand in the defense community. August, it's really wonderful to have you on the show. We really appreciate it. And when we discussed kicking this off, we named it From Tanks to Teleportation. The idea behind that is future technology is really, it may sound crazy, but it's really not as far away as it as it may seem. And that's what I love about your books. And with specifically, um, you know, since current commercial technology can be so much more advanced than what the DoD is currently using, Right. That's something that we've had people tell us that they think we're from the future simply because we can bring in technology that even though it's today's technology, it's just such a step change from what's currently being done. And that's what I really love about your writing. Um, being a futurist, you can take that technology that we have today or in the very near term and really make it something that's that's very real. And I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about that intersection of national security and near term technology. One of the ways to to think about technology particularly in this, in this context of the future of conflict or just the future of the security environment, is to start to unpack you know, what's possible and, and what's not. And, and the narratives that we've built in, in these two books have always hewed to a rule which has been pretty simple, but it's important, I think, to have some grounding in technological reality, particularly if you're going to stretch the bounds of, you know, uh, believability when it comes to concepts of operations or or other uh, other kind of more more you know applied aspects of how you use that stuff. So the cardinal rules in in books like Burn In and Ghost Suite are that all the technology has to be real or in development. Uh, it would have been been very interesting to have had, for example, you know, a campaign like we envisioned at the end of Ghost Suite with teleporting tanks, to use your your uh, tagline. Um, but it wouldn't have made the the book, I think, as impactful or useful. Uh, and it's certainly not to say that you can't write a great story that that has um, kind of physics bending and, and really fantastical uses of, of tech that we're familiar with today. But in the context of this useful fiction or the the label I've been giving it, Ficint, which is the riff on the you know human intelligence or signals intelligence, signet human, um, the idea that you can create something fictional have it be applicable in the real world uh, for those in the national security community who are trying to uh, unpack the role of technology. At the same time, you know, when I when I think about the different ways that technology is going to shape conflict, and also what what the U.S. military and intelligence communities are going to be investing in, it is easy to see when our backward-looking biases, you know, cause us to commit 
large amounts of money, you know, to ways of, of thinking about the future of war that don't track with the trends that, that I see uh, out there. And I wouldn't say that I have a perfect vision of the future or that any one person even does, but I do believe it's important to start really tangibly building those futures to understand whether the priorities we have set today are actually going to do us any good in the future. Um, you know, the, the value today, for example, of data and information that can be aggregated and collated and used for everything from targeting to, you know, shaping operations is only going to grow. And that's not to say that there isn't going to be a place for, uh, you know, platforms uh, that are, that are traditionally the, the, you know, domain or purview of a service like the Air Force or the Army. But the software that essentially is making those platforms relevant on, on the battlefield will be far more important than it ever has been. And, and to your point about the commercial sector, if it is that in the artificial intelligence domain, particularly in robotics, uh, you know, by extension, that the leading edge of innovation is sourced from non-traditional suppliers, you know, how the government understands its ability to prioritize, how it understands its ability to acquire those systems in a way that actually is, is useful in its scale. Because, you know, you can say something like, well, mass doesn't matter anymore. You know, we can do things virtually or with cyber warfare. But nonetheless, the, uh, the enterprise, if you will, in the national security, you know, establishment in the U.S. is so big that we do have to be able to take a good idea and populate it throughout very large communities. And though it is, I think, uh, great to see success in small uh, corners of and highly impactful corners of the national security establishment, like, let's say, Special Operations Command, what what we're also trying to figure out is how does that apply to, I think, big army? How does that uh, apply to the Air Force in terms of being able to take, for example, a very useful algorithm that helps you sift through information or finding a way to have systems communicate to one another that can't ordinarily and doing that not with hardware, but with new software breakthroughs? Or what can we offload onto, you know, cognitively speaking, onto machines so that we can keep up with this very, very fast-paced development of, of ideas that's uh, that's going to be shaping the future of conflict? That's really cool. You just launched, you mentioned you just launched that book, uh, Burn In. Congratulations, first of all. I ordered my first, my copy yesterday and about a quarter of the way through already. I'm really enjoying it. And as you mentioned, uh, as a teaser, there's an FBI special agent that teams up with a police robot to track down a terrorist. What appeals to me the most um, is that in this type of literature is the expert research that's done when it blends uh, science fiction and fact. So based on this research, I'm curious about your thoughts on the future when it comes to AI and robots. What are the coolest things that we'll see in the next five or 10 years? I think one of the really interesting aspects of our future with, with AI and, and robots is that it, it's in many ways already here. You know the recent uh, pandemic that, well, the current pandemic that we're that we're you know trying to cope with has ushered in technological changes in terms of adopting remote work practices, increasing automation and supply chain distribution, having us really start to assess you know how much we need to know about one another in our society and what role AI can 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 play in that. You know, contact tracing, for example, those are three massive trends that if you start to then follow those uh, little you know, rabbit holes, if you will, into certain areas like, let's say, telemedicine. You know, telemedicine has gone for very practical reasons through the roof in terms of adoption and, and, uh, and, and usage, because that's the exigency of the situation that we're in. So people in that field are looking at this and, and realizing that what they had forecast in terms of uh, you know, practices and large hospitals doing this would have taken 10 or 15 years. We're there already. 
education is another example. You know, large universities, small universities, you know, public school systems, uh, my kids' own elementary and, and, and high schools are, are wrestling with the role that the teacher and the physical place, for example, has in the the kind of pedagogical relationship between student and, and, and faculty and in and, uh, and the larger educational community. You know, in America or in, in most you know Western societies, that's a really really like foundational part of any community. So when technology is starting to affect and impact those relationships and, and forcing us to reimagine what they're going to be like, I think one of the really big the big challenges about this future with AI and robotics is being able to allow us to use our imagination so that we are able to have some agency in how these things evolve. So we can start to have a choice in terms of determining how much is too much in terms of automation or what role do we really want machines to play or not. What is certain, and I think is important and, and, and potentially exciting, is the partnership that can start to develop between us as individuals or us collectively and the, the software algorithms and, and machines that are, that are going to be increasingly part of everything from you know, factory work to you know, personal transportation. An example would be, you know, I would really be interested in trying to work with an algorithm that could help synthesize and create um, the sorts of stories that I like to write, because that would be a fascinating writing partner, if you will, to have. Not that I want to replace Pete with a piece of software, <laughs> but the idea that, you know, you could be more productive or you might be able to see your work in a new light. Or what if I was able to do visualizations of my written work by working with a machine learning or neural net partner that right. really change the very nature of how I express my ideas and, and creatively. And I, I realize that's a, that's a subset of, of, of society or, you know, the economy, you know, the, in, the, in the very, very narrow world that I'm in. But that is, I think, just one example. What I, what I don't want is to have a world in which we haven't asked really fundamental questions about the kinds of roles that we want machines to play. Uh, the, really, the really elemental notion of what it means to work and have a productive life in America I think is certainly going to be one of the big abiding questions that we have to start wrestling with when software starts to allow the possibility of replacing not just the manufacturing jobs, which have been typically those that are discussed as being vulnerable to automation, but work throughout the economy. So a lawyer, uh, a teacher, a physician, all have the potential, particularly as synthetic personalities are, are starting to develop, you know, deep fakes today are the nefarious version, but there is an upside to that too, that technology, which is this kind of idea of a synthetic, uh, you know, imagine if Siri were more real than, than just voice. Right. So, so we're looking at this new era that we're about to enter and that has profound implications, of course, for the national security environment. You know, our, our all volunteer force draws from our civilian society. The technology, as Zach said, comes from, in many cases, institutions that are not formerly government ones uh, and increasingly at arm's length from the government. So being able to extend connective tissue, if you will, you know, between all of those different entities and understand how it's going to fit together, not in a siloed way, not just thinking discreetly about what is the future of misinformation or what is the future of the uh, autonomous tank or how are we going to crew you know, surface vessels in the 2030s, realizing that all of these are wrapped up in very similar fundamental questions. So I think we have to start by really understanding, are we asking the right questions? And do we have a way to even begin to unpack them? Really cool. And a big part of that too, is having that imagination that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, as you said, with the pandemic, we've seen things happen that people didn't even realize was possible, but then now suddenly we've had to do it. We've had to go online and now we've, we've rolled it into existence, which is not, not unlike what we're trying to do in the defense innovation unit. And specifically for the DOD, I'm using that imagination, trying to tell the story make sure that we're asking the right questions. 
you know, a lot of that is what you refer to as ficant, fiction intelligence, which I appreciate the the pun on intelligence, but it really is a, a potential for a, a completely different source of information and knowledge and, and synthesis. I'm curious if you could speak a bit more about how you came up with this idea of Ficant, um, maybe some things that you've done across the Department of Defense to help us get a better handle on some of these problems that we're addressing. Trying to ex- explain whether anything I do has any impact at all is always a big challenge. And so one of the the ways that I, that I figured I might be able to do that was by coming up with an acronym, because I know the currency of acronyms in DC is, of course, incredibly important. Uh, and it was a little bit tongue in cheek that I initially came up with this Ficant notion, but it's actually become a great shorthand for describing the kinds of useful fiction that is rooted in reality and that follows uh, almost like a certain set of rules. You know, if I were to say what makes Ficant and what doesn't, some of the attributes, uh, and I think people can debate this, and that's fine too, um, and come up with their own variations on it. But as I see it, I would like to think that something that fits into that Ficant category follows, uh, for example, a rule that the technologies are real or, or in development, uh, as, as we've done in, in, the, in our books, that people act in ways that are much like how we act in our normal world, that just being transported into the future doesn't necessarily uh, change the very human elements and, and aspects to our relationships with one another. Uh, people are still afraid. They are still jealous. Uh, there is still bureaucracy in the future. Um, you know, those sorts of unspoken truths, I think, at the human level are important. And then, and then the other rule, too, is that, you know, when you're thinking about the way you want the world to work, being able to, at a first order level, understand that that probably isn't actually how it's going to happen. And, and knowing that the fog of war, that there are still mechanical breakdowns in the future, that batteries need to be charged, that a lot of these elements and annoyances really in, in today's, uh, today's civilian lives, but also in, in you know, military operations are going to be you know, present in the future. Um, you know, there's some some great comics that were strips were written by Doctrine Man, who does satirical comics about about military life, and, and some of his future oriented ones are really interesting because there were still burn pits essentially in like the year you know three thousand uh, in one of his strips, and I think that sort of a of a of a, a bit of humor is actually so cutting and so true. Uh, and really important as we start to try to conceive a very technologized way of war or a way that even uh, invites more use of robotics and autonomous systems in, in whatever form, whether they're small swarms or large, uh, you know, vessels that go to sea with, with uh, you know, autonomous systems aboard them as motherships. Nonetheless, there are going to be these truisms that you can look back through and I think use fiction to help touch touch base with. I mean, reading history is also incredibly useful to understand what's going to happen in the future. You know, if you want to understand, I think the future of special operations in Europe, reading a lot about the development of British uh, special operations, World War II, which was a fairly rambunctious effort and not very bureaucratically sanctioned, is great fodder uh, in terms of how the special boat service and how the special air service evolved at that time, for example. So, so there is a lot of connections. Uh, there are a lot of connections that you can make. I think intellectually that allow you to see those worlds, though, through narrative, right? Through character-driven tales that allow us to connect with, with people who live in these worlds. What are they seeing? What are they smelling? What are they touching? Uh, what makes them scared? What are they excited about? And, and that, to me, allows a, a much more emotional human connection through storytelling, which is such a great technology. It's so old. It's so effective. And in many sure. ways, it's a better way to approach than, than you know, the the PowerPoint, which is, I think, like 30 years old this year or something. So, For you know, sure. there, there, there are these other aspects that to the way we communicate today that I think we really do have to pause and, and ask, you know, not that I would say everyone should, should, you know, 
essentially analyze and, and read and write only fiction. It's one tool among many, to be clear. But are there better ways to communicate these ideas, particularly when they are disrupting and don't fit into the fit into the world as it actually is, not as we want it to be? And touching on storytelling, how's your research and your storytelling changed the way you look at the world? I think that's a it's a great question, and I'm uh, you know an inveterate researcher, and I love trying to you know come up with as much confidence uh, and sure footing uh, that I can find when I'm trying to conceive of an idea or a fictional world. And so being able to be very transparent about that with a reader, something that we really experimented with in Ghostly, when we started out writing the novel, you know, we had a kind of like a hundred pages of notes and concepts and ideas and, and white papers and, uh, you know, links to white papers, et cetera. And what we realized though, was as we got to, to the end of the book was that because we were asking people to kind of bite off a pretty big assumption uh, in that story, we wanted to share the underpinnings for for the confidence and that we had in portraying this scenario, even get as fantastical as it was. So, you know, we we at the end of the the editing process put the put the end notes in there, and it, you know, to give like a writer's or an editor's perspective on this, you know, that's a significant thing because every page in a book has to count. You know, the the weight of a book, the size of a book, all go into kind of the larger publishing economic decisions. So, if you're saying I want 27 pages, like in Burn In for end notes. That's either 27 pages less of narrative. You know, are you sure your story is going to be okay, you know, without that extra bit of pages? And it also, again, is that kind of fundamental question and just goes to manufacturing a paper book. And with Burn-In, though, after we saw the credibility that that helped give Ghostly, we knew from the start that we were going to have endnotes. And we think that is a really effective way to communicate, but also be able to establish credibility, especially for people who aren't aren't using fiction at work or even reading fiction at all, which there are there are great many folks who just simply don't don't make time for that. And, and that's understandable too. But our hope is that we can kind of bridge bridge between those communities. So the the amount of research that you know that, that I do is it's all in the open source world. And it ranges from, you know, good old fashioned Googling, but but much of it is also trying to talk to people and understand not even a discrete technical capability, but really cultural or, or almost very human questions. You know, how would you feel if you had to hop out of your car and had a robot beside you? Would you, at what point would you really trust it or not that it was going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Uh, you know, being able to draw on my own experiences, for example, and, and try to imagine what parenting might be like in the total information society that we, we describe and burn in. You know, how would I be able to conceive of that in a way that felt credible and would allow people to connect with a, with a character that has uh, a primary role in a story, you know, to, in this case, to essentially hunt somebody down, but is a real person and, and trying to show that so that we get people to see that the future isn't just about, you know, solving their discrete problem or their, their you know, issue of the day, but rather there are going to be a, pan, you know, a panoply of, of priorities that different people will have and making them all feel real and important. And that, that, that authenticity, I think, comes from trying to understand the role that technology plays in that, in that relationship. And that's a big thing for us as well. So when we do research on a project, it's oftentimes going out to commercial industry because they've oftentimes solved these problems that we have in the DoD. And it's doing the same thing. It's it's talking about how the problem was solved, getting those user stories, and then going back in the DoD where these people, colleagues, might think it's crazy, right? Again, I said, uh, we're told sometimes they think we're from the future. Being able to share those stories of, well, no, this is how it's happening in, in industry. These are some of the things that could happen in DOD and just really making that connection for people so that they can they can visualize it and then get support that way. It's a tremendously useful 
uh, I would say art more so than than anything else. Kind of in that vein, you mentioned something on Twitter that I thought was really interesting. You talked about this the, could either go really badly or that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and we're not going to flash any any tweets on the screen to surprise you. But no, it's about the future of work, right? It's about the pandemic and COVID nineteen and and everything else. And and you mentioned that you think this pandemic will speed that up, right? And that's something that I is really interesting concept because as we mentioned earlier. This technology is here. It's just a matter of how we're using it. And I'm curious if you could speak to how that accelerates the future. You know, the, the William Gibson quote, Gibson being the science fiction writer who uh, in the 80s really coined the cyberpunk or coined the term cyberspace and, and birthed the cyberpunk genre with like Bruce Sterling and others uh, about, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago said, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I feel like that every single day today. When I'm, and especially using social media to kind of ascertain, you know, these little like almost peepholes into other realities and seeing narratives develop, you know, in that kind of uh, both visual sense, but also almost like the swarming like nature of, of, uh, of, of, you know, algorithmic driven social media. You know, we're, we're certainly at this point where these trends uh, that have to do with remote work, remote learning, uh, being forced to, I think, adopt technologies and ways of working that in fact allow us to prevail. I mean, you know, we don't have to be in a studio together right now, right? We can do this. And we all adapted quite quickly to it, which is a marvelous thing. But yet we're also potentially laying the groundwork for permanent shifts. You know, if, if half of working Americans are effectively out of work, it's like 40 million right now. You know, that that is not too dissimilar to some of the estimates that come from groups ranging from, you know, the Oxford study in 2013 and 18 on, on unemployment from automation, you know, KPMG, others, all kind of are in that 40 to 50% of uh, vulnerable American jobs to automation estimate. So trying to conceive of a society in which those who aren't working right now never went back to work. Uh, and, and there is a, a real risk that many of the, the positions that were there pre-coronavirus aren't coming back, depending on the economists you follow. And maybe I'm more sensitive to this because of my background as a business journalist, but I'm acutely aware of what that implies. And, and also, you know, to see that from the other side, which is how ill-equipped we are right now as a society to, to deal with that, uh, to really kind of address these fundamental questions about how do we remain, how do we be, I should say, even just a resilient society. If, if we are, you know, going off into the 2020s and 2030s as uh, committing to a national defense strategy, you know, that is going to envision great power conflict as a possibility and prepare for it. It seems equally important that we have to understand where are the vulnerable uh, fault lines at home and how do we create a society that can weather the sorts of attacks that may be declared or undeclared by an adversary in that great power context, whether it's sweeping cyber vulnerabilities, whether it's a healthcare system that isn't coping with uh, with an unexpected, you know, historic, to be fair, pandemic uh, and leadership uh, on the and, and governments at, at many levels that, that are not necessarily set on, I think, trying to use this as a, as a way to come together and rather than, than keep people apart for kind of very tactical political gains. I, I see that in my futurist sense as being very troubling. And, and yet, especially so when this acceleration of technology is pulled forward. You know, there's also a demand signal right, too, right now too in robotics and autonomy because factories and distribution centers have a real imperative to increase their, their mechanical automation right now. Because, you know, robot doesn't get sick. And yes, I know it can break down and, you know, it's vulnerable potentially to hacking, et cetera. But the paradigm in, in most commercial businesses that are in that sector right now uh, is really is really trying to resolve how do you ensure the next time there's a pandemic or some, or some other disruption that you can keep your supply lines open, your facilities uh, moving along. 
we may see reshoring, right? You know, companies that are that are not confident in China's ability to uh, sustainably manufacture in whatever comes next in terms of coronavirus or another situation may bring plants back to the U.S., but those plants will also be heavily automated. They will not be like the plants that politicians promised, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago even. So we're at this point where we're starting to see, you know, the increasing capability of, of mechanical, you know, kind of robotics in the industrial sense. We have everyday AI uh, all around us. You know, it's helping run everything from, you know, calls like this to managing our social media networks and, and spooling us up and uh, not really calming us down very much. You know, so, so we're, we're also trying to, to come to grips with that too and, and really tr- slow things down so that we feel like, you know what, I can figure this out. I can handle that. I don't think there's too many people right now that are in that state of mind, of course, because of a pandemic. But those forces, though, that are, that are at work in business, that are, that are at work um, in the national security realm too, uh, particularly trying to wrestle with some of the same questions. You know, a, a nation that has to put its carrier in port because its crew is sick is going to ask fundamental questions about the vulnerability to further biological events or attacks in the future, you know, and the the desire to create, for example, in the Navy's sense, less and less crew aboard uh, ships, trying to create you know, more autonomous vehicles uh, on the surface and undersea, I think, speak to some of those imperatives. And then again, back to my business journalist hat, there's an economic aspect too. I mean, one of the projects I just did for the NATO Innovation Center uh, innovation hub was uh, looking at at essentially NATO in 2040. And the scenario that I played with was that France was the last NATO nation that insisted on having a human uh, fighting force, that the other members in Europe were not willing to sustain or pay for that anymore. And in fact, you know, on moral and ethical grounds, felt that robots were a better, uh, better, better sort of option for defending their interests, you know, abroad and being a deterrent. Uh, America was the other country too in that scenario. It was still uh, insisting on having a, a human army and, and at, at great scale. I think those are really fundamental questions that that sound totally bonkers. But in, when you start actually looking at the trends that you see today, you see pulled forward from coronavirus, they're not actually as as far off as as, as you potentially think. Some of it is again imagining what's possible and what's not. Always makes me think of this question of life follows art, and it certainly seems that way when you see movies or other literature that come out a few years later, and we're kind of living the situation. Uh, what was once in our imagination, we're now experiencing. So I'm curious if whenever you're doing your storytelling or writing, do you ever have the question in your mind, what if all this turns out to be true? I, one of the things I wrestle with is, would I want to live in the world I've created? And and this with Burnin is something I, I've really wrestled with. You know, would I want to be in the position that Laura Keegan's husband is in, a, a you know, white shoe lawyer who lost his job to an algorithm and is struggling to, to deal with that. You know, someone who felt like that they did everything right, that they had all the boxes ticked and yet society does not essentially have uh, what, what they felt they were owed. That is incredibly impactful on everything from, you know, well, their self-esteem and, and how they relate to others in their immediate family, but also their politics. Uh, also what they feel uh, that they, that they then want from society in turn. And so for me, you know, being able to envision worlds that I want to avoid, which is probably more of what I'm doing. I'm not a dystopian, you know, per se. I am somebody who's, I think, fairly optimistic, but I, but I say I do stare into the abyss a lot. Uh, I would like to think that if someone, you know, comes across the stories that I've worked on, that it's helped them feel like they can take more responsibility or have agency in determining the future that's ahead rather than, 
kind of that paralytic response where you're like, oh, this is just so bad. Like we're, we're doomed, you know, uh, that's not, that's not the response. I feel that's almost, it's almost like irresponsible, but also, um, I mean, it's great to indulge, you know, I don't know if you read Cormac McCarthy's the road, but that, that book wrecked me, uh, because I really felt like, you know, there's just nothing you can do in that scenario, but, you know, scrounge along until you die and, uh, take care of your kids. And I was like, wow, that's a meditation. Um, and I don't know if you've read Lawrence Wright's End of October, which is out now and envisions a kind of the, it's like a prequel to Cormac McCarthy's book. So I would read that with caution uh, because I'll have to uh, check it out. Yeah, it's a tough caution. one, but, but it speaks to this, it speaks to this point though, of, of trying to, you know, think about the worlds that we want to live in and can we describe ones we want to avoid so they don't actually come true. And I probably spend more, more time like that, uh, than I do, you know, in kind of a, a utopian, a utopian frame of mind. Uh, and, and it's not, again, out of any kind of self-indulgent, but it's either I'd like to be cautionary uh, and have people take away something that makes them think they can do, make a better future. Vernon does talk about one thing that is utopian. You can push a button and beat DC traffic, which if you could bring that, that would be a true game changer, I think. Yeah. You know, the, the traffic <laughs> is a really fun thing in that, in, in Vernon, well, I mean, it's not fun per se, but uh, it's a, it's a great way to connect tomorrow to today. And, and I, I think too, you know, this is kind of the, the challenge of, I think to some extent your work too, is that you're trying to talk about technologies today and how they're going to change in the, the, the world in the future. So driverless cars are, are in development and are coming and are going to be the norm, you know, probably within a decade or so. The question is, will we still have traffic, right? Will we still have accidents? You know, what we'll like to be in that world where you're not quite in control uh, as much uh, of, of your, your mobility and, you know, personal transportation is such an American you know, there's so much wrapped up in that, you know, the idea of the open road, et cetera. But, but yet at the same time, you know, being able to, especially for people who have lived in the DC area, uh, to know that like the beltway is still going to be a terrible place to drive, even when there's autonomous cars, that just rings true. And, and, and gosh, we might be wrong on that. You know, perhaps it'll be the smoothest flowing, you know, traffic center in the world. Uh, but I don't, I'm not betting on it in part because of algorithms, right. In part because of the competition that will be between various platforms and the software that drives them. You know, we know that, you know, there is no one quote unquote AI, right? Like the the idea that everybody has their own implementations and, and, and you know, value sets and weightings and data that power uh, the, the, the software they're using certainly is going to create kind of a much more heterogeneous environment, um, but yet one that moves at machine speed. Uh, and that to me is a really fascinating thing because this whole, you know, conversation, especially in the national security sense, you know, human on the loop or in the loop, you know, being in the loop is going to be really, really difficult. And and I think if if cognitively, you know, we don't have some kind of a breakthrough or, or perhaps even merge more with machines, in part because we're just going to need kind of like within some of the cyber domain, uh, you know, you need the machine to do its thing without us getting in the way. And, and uh, you know, that's, I think, certainly going to be the case with traffic in the future, uh, if anything, because of the complexity of, of, you know, those problems to start to solve. There may be something, I think, to, to that in, in terms sort of understanding the future of, of conflict too. Yeah. And to double tap on that a bit, the future of conflict, you mentioned NATO 2040, which is fascinating to think in, in 20 years time, not necessarily having standing armies. But if we could shift that a bit to maybe 2025, 2028, and particularly in the work that we do in Defense Innovation Unit to try to bring that technology that is here, just not evenly distributed. Could you speak a bit more maybe in terms of that next five or so years, what you think, especially accelerated by COVID-19, what we may be seeing in the in the national security landscape and that the U.S. will have to react to? I think in the next 10 to 10 years to even five years, you're going to see uh, an uptick in adoption of 
you know, human machine te- teaming capabilities, uh, particularly I think in the undersea and, and naval domain, because we're trying to wrestle with the geography of the Pacific and how to deter China. I think that is going to be an area where, depending on on how we we prioritize those acquisition programs, because they are, in, of course, competition with uh, you know crude or, or or you know human oriented systems. But you know, you're looking at some of the work the Marine Corps is doing and trying to reimagine that that fighting force uh, that has a lot more integration with uh, robotic and semi-autonomous systems. I think speaks to the kind of transformation that will become more prevalent throughout. So, you know, small uh, robotic systems that are very useful for the army, for example, in dense urban areas that can accomplish a lot of the missions that have to do with resupply, maybe casualty evacuation, for example, would be two areas that I would be incredibly interested in, in part because those are highly dangerous missions. We often use helicopters for them, which are very, very vulnerable uh, already. And yet, if you could come up with alternatives that did not risk human lives uh, to just move materiel around like batteries and, and ammunition and food. Uh, that would seem to be a very sensible thing. You know, the other aspect too is whether the the contest over hypersonic technology will be be really important or not. And you know, I'm I'm not entirely certain that it that it will, given the other capabilities that are there uh, at a strategic level, and that introducing the kind of potential conventional long range strike that's talked about as a priority. I don't know if that will be as deterrent as we think, because in the way that I think about the kind of scenarios where that's possible, I have a hard time seeing how it might be used against targets, say, in mainland China, without having them take a much more disproportionate response. You know, given the what I know of their doctrine in the open source world, that doesn't seem like it would be uh, a very successful uh, gambit to 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 take. Uh, it's one of the issues with the air sea battle a long time ago too. Um, in Europe, I'm really interested in in the use of small units. Uh, that are highly integrated with not tanks and armor, but data. Uh, you know, given the density of, of population in areas like the Baltics and, and cities being much more of a focus or center of gravity than than they might be in other uh, parts of the world, like in the Middle East and, and in uh, Central Asia and in parts of the Pacific. You know, in, in Europe, I think the narrative campaign as being a not a uh, psychological operations or unconventional warfare, but actually like a, a larger a larger kind of contest uh, is going to be really important. And that's certainly going to be the domain of, of AI and machine learning and neural networks. You know, being able to create the sorts of uh, always on access to information, for example, in a great power contest that is favorable to your side, especially if it's not biased, especially if it's just as it would be, say, prebellum, uh, would be a really valuable tool. And yet also some really fundamentals, you know, the flip side of that is just how do you get people across the Atlantic? Uh, you know, we don't preposition like we used to. So are there ways to think about how we use autonomous systems to do that? Are there ways to preposition autonomous systems like we once, you know, did battalions of, of M1 tanks? Uh, or will that cause the sorts of problems that trying to put, you know, Pershing missiles in Germany did in, in, uh, in during the Cold War? You know, being able to put a legion of battle bots, you know, in a bunker, in Norway or or, uh, or Germany, you know, maybe as provocative to uh, to the Russians as as deploying F thirty fives, you know, today. Um, you know, we still live in the world we live in as well. So, you know, getting an F thirty five, for example, or an F twenty two to talk uh, still may be a challenge in twenty twenty five or twenty 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 eight. But that would be a priority, right? I mean, you know, the interoperability question as a field of innovation that's incredibly important and not not terribly shiny uh, would would and I know there's progress being made with you know offboarding or whatever but um but being able to crack those kinds of like really really important operational questions I think is is critical um, to some extent too you know I would think also 
about about the threat, you know, the mining in the North Atlantic that would be almost certain in a conflict with Russia, uh, being able to use autonomous systems to solve problems. And, and if you kind of go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, talking to people who are solving problems outside of the defense community, certainly that's not a priority per se, but there are other applications that I think can use uh, data in, in similar ways to, you know, find, identify and deal with, uh, you know, physical real world things that might be able to to help help you know thwart or stop some of those kinds of threats from being as big as an adversary might might want them to be. And I think that's how I kind of conclude that answer, which is like I would think about everything that I want to have come true, everything my adversary wants to have come true, and figure out how they're going to be working to essentially, you know, make my best day my worst. Um, it's not a very you know, complex kind of notion, I realize, but I think that fundamental disassembly can really lead you to some interesting technological solutions and potentially point potentially point you towards the sort of people who have answers that may not be resident within our traditional you know, companies or institutions in the in the defense realm. Well, you touched on about 10 different DIU projects in your in your response. And so that's that's inspiring. So there's a lot of talk about jobs being replaced with AI. I know some I've read some 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 places where 40 percent job loss would be replaced by AI in the next 10 years. What are your thoughts on how we actually prepare for that over the next, I mean, 10 years is not a lot of time. So how, how do we prepare for that as, as public? This is perhaps one of the most important questions we have to wrestle with uh, and start dealing with it literally right now, uh, in part because of the economic toll that COVID has had on the American workforce. You know, we're, we're looking at the ability to replace people in fields that I think believed they were immune to automation. You know, this is a robotics and software revolution together. It's not simply uh, a dark factory that has no people in it, but it's going to a primary care appointment and talking to a synthetic personality, uh, even if you're in the doctor's office, if you need to, to physically go there to be either uh, essentially directed to a certain type of care or not, or maybe you're doing it from your, your home. You know, the, the, the notion that we're going to see the same technological uptake uh, during coronavirus tail off or or uh, be reduced you know in the next couple of years I think would be would be wrong and that you know much of what we're we're viewing in terms of the remote work uh, practices that are being you know established I wouldn't say perfected but uh, honed uh, you're seeing the uh, essentially autonomization of everything from retail which was already competing you know with with online to be lasting and permanent. So the, the the surveys that are out there, and you know the the first ones to kind of shoot the the first shot across the bow were out of Oxford University, but many of the major consulting companies are are, are tackling with this too, uh, as they try to prepare companies for this. But your your question I think is apt because you're talking about how do we prepare society, and and being able to understand you know how we are most vulnerable, and what our world might be like if half of our workforce isn't able to work. Uh, that is something that is almost an existential kind of crisis that I don't think our system right now is is ready for. You know, we're we're struggling as it is to you know meet the basic needs of people who want to work and can't because of coronavirus, uh, and that is not to me a very hardy indicator that we're going to have the political will to kind of move beyond traditional understandings of uh, the role of work, the role of an individual's worth. And uh, you know, I don't necessarily think we're going to be kind of living in a Sweden, you know, in America and. Right the end of the 2020s, but it's not sustainable that we have this much economic and social uh, precarity and, and enter into a world in which, you know, half of the people who, who want to work are not able to, or maybe even more. 
Um, and, and, you know, the studies themselves vary. I mean, some, some will say, uh, you know, like I think it was uh, IMF, I think had even as few as 10% of jobs. Um, let's say Oxford was at 42 and, you know, or 43 and then, you know, KPMGs, you know, in that same ballpark. But even if there's 10% of working Americans who can't work and want to, because their field has been, has been, it's a big number. And, and these are individual experiences. And this again is where I think fiction is really important because it's one thing to talk about statistics and data. Uh, especially when you, when you get into these really core issues that are so fundamental to what it means to be an American. You know, how often have you been to a barbecue and someone said, so what do you do? Um, that to me is a really important thing that we have to wrestle with this existential level. And it's policy around everything from retraining, uh, from ensuring that, you know, we have a healthcare system that can be more efficient and keep people uh, well uh, who can't work, even if we have these sorts of pandemics, which will happen again. You know, that's the sort of nightmare scenario. If you think about it, you know, the world of burn-in where, where fewer people are working than, than want to, uh, you know, are, are, in a, are in a situation where they don't have access to healthcare. Um, you know, that's not a, a too far-fetched of a scenario to, to imagine based on the world that we're in here in 2020. Yes, yeah, so true. Well, that, this has been really incredible. I know I learned a lot today, as I'm sure many of our audience did as well. Uh, thank you, August, for educating us today and taking the time to chat with us. It was great to be on the show, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk uh, with my friends here at DIU. Thanks, August. Thank you again to August and Zach for joining us today and even giving us a bit of a glimpse into the future. August's work and his books really do help us understand the individual human impact of shifting to robotic and software solutions in the defense industry. It's been so much fun talking to you. That's it for this installment of Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend. And we'll be back soon with more about the Defense Innovation Unit efforts. Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation is created in partnership between the U.S. Department of Defense and Founding Media. To learn more about the Defense Innovation Unit, please visit the links in our show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening.